Let's go to the Lord in prayer together before we look at the word. Father, we've gathered in your name. We've gathered in the name of the Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, worshiping you today, lifting up our voices in song. Lord, my prayer right now is that you would have our attention, that we would yield our hearts and minds to you for the next few moments as we look at your word, that that yielding would not stop when we walk out those doors, that we would take the message of the gospel with us and to be challenged and encouraged with it. Father, I pray that you would take the words that I say that are unprofitable, that you would remove them from our memories, that you would drive home the message of your word. Father, I pray that you would speak through the message of the gospel this morning. Help us to be attentive to your word. Help us to be obedient to your word. Help us to yield to you in the work that you want to do in and through your people. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Pastor John Piper, in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, great title for a book, don't you think? Don't Waste Your Life. He writes about an American tragedy and how not to finish your one life. I would encourage you to get a copy of the book. Well worth the read. He says, I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who, quote, took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells, end quote. Piper says, at first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream. But it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ on the great day of judgment. Uh, Look, Lord, see my shells? He says, that is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest, says Piper, don't buy it. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. On that note, I have a question for you. What is your passion? What is your passion? If I asked each of you what your passion was, what you were passionate about, I guess that that I might get a different answer from each person. Some might be similar, but I'd get something different from everybody. One might say it's uh, the game of golf that really keeps them going, you know, because you got that tea time on Thursday night. You got something to look forward to. For me, it wasn't golf. I um, spent more time in the woods than on the green, and so I traded my clubs for a chainsaw, literally, because I figured if I was going to be in the woods, I might as well be productive, right? 
And it's not sawn wood that's my passion either. Little dinky chainsaw is kind of a joke, but it's been more productive than the golf clubs I traded for them. One, one might say if I asked someone, if I asked a grandparent what your passion was in life, you'd say, well, now, you know, lately my passion has been my grandchildren. I just love to spend time with my grandchildren. I just love to give them good things. I love to shop for them and find them nice things. I love to go to their ball games. I love to be at their piano recitals or whatever recitals. I'm passionate about my grandchildren. I love my grandchildren. For the school teacher, the answer might be that they're passionate about helping their students learn. They just love to see the, the young mind being molded and shaped and learning and growing and maturing and the light turning on, going, oh, I get it. They're passionate about teaching young lives. For the retiree, it might be that they're passionate about traveling and seeing the country and taking it easy. For the salesman, it could be that closing the next big deal is what drives them. That's their, their passion. It's what gets them out of bed in the morning. gets them through the next week. There was uh, once a well-educated man brought up in the finest of schools, a man who had come to be very passionate about his work. He wasn't much different than many who are passionate about what they do today. He believed in God. You could say he believed in God and He was very religious, but he wasn't a Christian. He even did his work in the name of religion. And his work was really what got him going every day. It was what drove him, what motivated him. He he lived to do his job, and he did his job very well, like no one else. He was so good at what he did that he had really made a name for himself. People all over knew him. The truth was, people all over feared him. He was brutal. He was a violent man, a man who sought to eliminate Christianity. He pursued Christians. He hauled them off to jail. He caused some to flee for their lives and go into hiding for fear for their own safety. He consented to the killing of believers and he even watched while one believer was put to death. He was was passionate about getting rid of the church. He was passionate about getting rid of Christians. And then one day, everything changed. It all changed on the road to Damascus, right? Jesus actually confronted Saul, who would later be called Paul while he was on the road, confronted him in a display of of the brilliance of Jesus Christ and his own glory, and Saul was temporarily blinded. And yet, while physically blinded, he was no longer spiritually blind. Now he could see spiritually the folly of his first passion. He could see the folly of what he was once very and extremely passionate about and did very well. He now could see spiritually that Jesus Christ was the way. He was the truth and he was the life. Jesus Christ, you see, had seized Paul's attention on that road to Damascus. From that day forward, Saul became a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus had his attention. And he became very passionate with a new passion. 
He now had a new passion. Knowing Jesus was his passion and making him known to others was his passion. Where he had once been passionate about eliminating Christians, he was now passionate about spreading the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, doing all he could with the gospel of Jesus Christ to win others to Christ. That was his new passion. And he became very good at it. And it was what motivated him and what drove him and what caused him to even sacrifice himself and his own health and his own safety. That was Paul. That was his passion. Knowing Christ. Making Christ known. Helping others come to know Christ personally. So having asked what your passion is, having shown you what Paul's passion was, what should we choose as a passion? What should those who follow Christ make their highest passion in this life? Have you ever thought about that? As we reach Colossians chapter 2 this morning, I think we find the answer in the example of Paul's passion. Would you go there with me, please? Would you take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to Colossians chapter 2? As we see what Paul was passionate about after becoming a follower of Christ, I think we're going to find the answer to the question of what should those who follow Christ make their highest passion? What should drive them? What, what should motivate them? What should get them out of bed in the morning? What should get them going from week to week? What should make them look forward to another Monday? Colossians chapter 2. Let's look at verses 1 through 5 together this morning. Paul says to the Colossian believers in verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. I told you Paul's passion was knowing Christ and making him known. That was his new passion after becoming a follower of Christ. So what was the passion of Paul's ministry? What was he passionate about in ministry? What were the things that drove him to know Christ and to make him known? I think Paul's passion for ministry was primarily based on a love for people. Paul's passion for ministry began with people. We can see Paul's passion for ministry in his heart for others. You could say he was others-centered. He served and he suffered for the church, the church that he once persecuted and pursued and killed and had incarcerated. He now suffered for. He was now incarcerated for. He was now pursued for the sake of the church. And he could do that because he was others-centered. He was people-centered. 
He was passionate about people. He served and he suffered for the church, for God's people. And he served and suffered for lost people so that they would be a part of God's people. People were who were like he once was. He loved people. And he wanted to bring people back from the brink of destruction in life and bring them to the only hope, Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1, look at it again with me, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Paul emphasizes the same thing back in Colossians chapter 1, the struggle, verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Our English word agony comes from the Greek word represented here in the text as struggle. It was a sports term used to convey the idea of how hard one worked and struggled and agonized to win the game. Agony comes from that Greek word. I think it's agonizomai. Agony. That's Paul's passion for ministry. Struggling, working, doing whatever it takes. As if struggling in that sporting event to win the game. That's Paul's passion for ministry. He agonized and he worked and he struggled and he toiled for the sake of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his focus on others can also be seen in the fact that he was ministering in part for the good of those he'd never met. You see it in verse 1. He says, and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now, the fact that he mentions Laodicea is probably an indicator that the false teaching that the church was dealing with in Colossae was also confronting the church in Laodicea, so he addresses Laodiceans. And then he mentions those who have not seen me face to face. You know, Paul's passion for ministry can be seen in his love for people, and he proves it because he's willing to give himself for people he's never met and may never meet this side of heaven. Much the same are those who have gone before us here at Higgins Lake Baptist Church. Over 50 years ago, a small group of believers led by a missionary pastor began meeting on this spot for the sake of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to the residents of the Higgins Lake community and surrounding communities. To reach people for Jesus Christ right where we live. And they did it knowing that it would likely, it was very likely that they would never meet the many, many people who would come years and decades after they were long gone. And that people would come after they had struggled and be ministered to with the gospel of Jesus Christ and would benefit because of their labor and because of their suffering and because of their struggle and because of their refusal to give up. And because of that, a church has grown and a church has flourished for 50 years. And we're still here and we still preach the gospel. And we still desire to bring people to Christ, right? To know Christ and to make him known. Because of those who have gone before us to labor and to struggle and to work and, and to, to agonize and to even suffer to bring about this work so that we can minister to people they never met this side of heaven. You know, that's what ministry is. 
We will cease to be a church when we aren't all about equipping Christian people to evangelize lost people. You know that? It's all about working. Working to know Christ, first of all, and then working to help others know Christ. You know, we won't be a church anymore if we ever stop teaching Christians how to be Christians, right? If we stop educating Christians, if that's why we're here, right, to be encouraged in, the, in our walk with Christ. And we will cease to be a church when we aren't all about equipping Christians to evangelize lost people, Christian people evangelizing lost people. That's what we're all about. That's why those who came before us began what they did and worked so hard and struggled and agonized to bring about this work. That was Paul. That's what ministry is. And let us never lose sight of the fact that that is why we are here. People. People. Which leads us to Paul's purpose in ministry. What was the purpose of Paul's ministry? We've seen his passion. What what drives him? What was his proposed outcome? What was his purpose? I think Paul's purpose in ministry was that the church would be, first of all, encouraged. Encouraged. Verses 2 and 3. Look at verse 2 where it says that their hearts may be encouraged, right? Warren Wearsby notes that our English word encourage means with heart. To encourage people is to give, he says, give them new heart. Shallow sympathy usually makes people feel worse. But true spiritual encouragement makes them feel better. It brings out the best in people. You know, when people are ministered to with the gospel by people who care about them, they are encouraged. Have you ever been ministered to like that? When you're ministered to with the gospel of Jesus Christ by someone who cares about you, you will be encouraged. Paul's purpose in ministry was that the church be encouraged and that they get a new heart and that they get new heart, that they be encouraged to press on, to go ahead and work, to keep working, to keep laboring. And you'll see how he was able to do that later because it shouldn't be without joy. He has joy. We'll see it. Paul's purpose for ministry was also that God's people be, look at the text, it says, knit together. Knit together. How? How are God's people to be knit together? In love. Hmm. Verse 2. Being knit together in love. How does one become knit together in love? I say unity in the body of Christ is the product of love. We won't be unified if we don't love one another. I'm not saying that we have to be lemmings. I'm not saying that we have to be identical, right, clones of one another. But we can have unity, and we will have unity when there's love. I see love in this church. I praise God for that. That brings me great joy. And unity follows love for one another, genuine, heartfelt, concern for others. I think of the knitting that our Christie does. I asked her about this yesterday, and realized that I was confused. I'm always confused about knitting and crocheting. Ladies, I mean, pardon me, but I can't seem to figure out which is which, okay? And, um, but it's like the knitting that Christy's been doing for the last year. I watch her take what looks to me like this uselessly long piece of yarn and turn it into something useful, you know, like a hat or something to keep you from burning your hand on that pot that's getting passed around the table, right? Or something to set your glass on, right? 
And she takes this long piece of yarn that looks useless to me and makes it something pretty and beautiful and useful. That's what Paul's talking about here. And he's saying that love is that thing that knits you together. That's what, you, that's what it takes. He wants the church to be encouraged. He wants the church to be knit together. You know, genuine, unselfish love toward and for others in the body of Christ is like that. It takes individual believers like that strand of yarn. It takes individual believers that by ourselves we may not be able to accomplish a whole lot. But together, knit together in love we can accomplish great things for Christ. There's a third facet of the purpose for Paul's ministry, and that is that God's people would know Christ. That they would know Christ. That they would know the mystery of God. Verses 2 and 3 say, To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why is it important that God's people know Christ? It's right there. Here's why it's important that you and I know Christ and know God's word. Because as Paul says in verse 3, it is in Christ that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. You know, it's in Christ that true knowledge is revealed. You know, the unbeliever doesn't have true wisdom and knowledge. There's lots of knowledge in this world, okay? There are libraries filled with knowledge. I have nothing against books. I have a lot of books I'd like to read and I'm working through. I love books. But if our knowledge doesn't begin with God, it's really not knowledge. It's really not wisdom. True knowledge comes from God. And it is in Christ that true knowledge is revealed. The unbeliever has no access to the wisdom of God. The unbeliever thinks they have the world's wisdom to lead them. But the world's wisdom falls short, doesn't it? Because if you go by the world's wisdom, it does not lead you to Christ. But it is Christ that's true that is in Christ that true knowledge is revealed. That unbeliever has no access to that wisdom of God. The believer has it. And this is precious. The believer has access to that wisdom and knowledge through Christ. And knowledge should lead to practice, which is actually what wisdom is. So if you have the knowledge that's revealed by Christ, it ought to lead to wisdom, which is the practice of that knowledge. Because if I run out in the road and stand in front of a moving vehicle, you'd say, well, he didn't know better, right? No, you'd say that was stupid. That wasn't very smart. That wasn't very wise, right? Knowledge says stay out of the road. Wisdom says stay back. There's a truck coming, okay? God's word is God's knowledge. And as an unbeliever, unbelievers can read God's word, but they don't get wisdom. They don't practice it. They don't, have, they don't have the knowledge of God revealed to them by Jesus Christ at work in them through the Holy Spirit. They're going to be terribly deficient in the wisdom department, in the practice department. You see, believers in Colossae and believers in Laodicea needed to take full advantage of the treasures of wisdom and the knowledge that are hidden in Christ. And so Paul encourages them to do so. You see, they were facing false teachers and dangerous myths. Any falsehoods and dangerous myths in our day? Absolutely. By the boatload. If not more so 
you know, with the advent of the Internet. And, and I heard a, uh, a statistic the other day about the number of books that are published every day in this world. It's truly astounding to think about the glut of information we have and much of it counter biblical, OK, anti-biblical. So the need for the church to know Christ today and the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Jesus Christ is no less important today. It's probably even more important today. The need for God's people today to be in the word and people of the word is critical. With all the opportunities for the Christian mind to be influenced by the world through television, through print media, through Internet, through movies. You know, movies today are practically on demand. Did you know that if you have a high-speed Internet connection, you can download a movie at will and watch them? You know, you can pay your three or four bucks, download a movie, watch it right now. You don't even have to get in your car anymore. You know, we have this media that surrounds us in this world, and it's overwhelmingly anti-biblical. And believers today have got to be people in the Word and people of the Word to combat the glut of information that we have coming from the world. All you have to do is allow yourself to be pulled from one busy entertainment to the other, one busy pleasure to the other, to be kept from God's word and never open the book and never yield yourself to God and his wisdom, the wisdom revealed to you through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. We need the treasures of wisdom and the knowledge hidden in Christ. And if we take advantage of them, if we take advantage of that knowledge and that wisdom, there will be products that result from our lives. There will be products that come out of the life lived for Christ with the knowledge and wisdom of Christ. What were the products of Paul's ministry? Let's look. The products of Paul's ministry are really a reflection of his aim for spreading the gospel and presenting believers mature in Christ, as we saw back in chapter 1, verse 28, in that believers who are mature in Christ, get this, believers who are mature in Christ are protected from deceitful Error. You want to be protected from error? Get mature in Christ. Get into the Word. Be a people, be a person of the Word. Be a person of the book. And let it influence your thinking because there's so much in this world that influences your thinking the other way, away from God's Word. Believers who are mature in Christ are protected from deceitful error. Verse 4, Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, those plausible arguments might sound good, but they're lies. They're falsehoods, okay? That's what he's talking about. Now, those who are feasting on the treasures of wisdom and the knowledge hidden in Christ will be protected from deceitful error. So it's critical that we be people of the word. One commentator notes that only this full knowledge and wisdom of Christ can keep a believer from being deceived by fine-sounding arguments. That's plausible arguments. Truth and persuasion do not always correlate. Error can persuade, and truth can be compelling at times. It all depends on whether one has the full truth and the complete commitment to it. You know, the church 
And God's people must stand firm in their commitment to the whole counsel of God's word. Only then does the church and only then do God's people, individual believers, stand a chance against the wiles of the devil. When you stand firmly, when you grasp the knowledge that God has privileged you to obtain between the pages of his word, and you stand firm in the truths that you find there, And though Paul was not with the churches in person at Colossae and Laodicea, he could rejoice that because of this this next product of faithful ministry, he could rejoice because they were, here's the next product, they were firm in their faith. He could rejoice. Verse 5 says, I'm going to skip a part of verse 5 here. He says, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Here it is. You get away from the word and your life's product will be shaky. Okay, it'll be a worldly product, I guarantee it. You get away from the word and the product of your life will equate to worldliness. Because of their faith and because it was firmly in Christ, there was, here's a result too, there was order in the church. Because they were steadfast and solid in Christ, Paul could rejoice. That leads to another product of Paul's passion for ministry, and I alluded to it earlier, it was Paul's joy. You know, he talks about laboring and striving, and I talked about agony, right? You can strive, and you can labor, and you can work, and you can toil, because there's also joy. Paul's joy, verse 5, back up in verse 5 again, look at it with me. He says, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. I was thinking about this this week. Paul's joy could be summed up in the familiar acronym JOY. You guys know that familiar acronym in the church who has been around forever? JOY, right? J-O-Y. What is it? Jesus, others, you. Right? You got it. Jesus, others, you. I think that's... Paul had it right, didn't he? He had the order right. No, that's not... Maybe that's out of the Bible. I don't think that's out of the Bible. Anybody know if that did Jesus? You know, that's certainly a scriptural thought, but you're not going to see that in a passage. I'm not suggesting that. But he had that order right, didn't he? He had Jesus first in his life, didn't he? What came next? His love for people, others. And what was the result? Himself. He, he, had, he experienced joy. That's what it's all about. Paul's joy could be summed up in that familiar acronym, joy, Jesus, others, you. When you get that order right in your walk with Christ, when the order's right, you know, J-O-Y, you experience joy. Even though, even though you might toil and though you might struggle and though you might labor and agonize to see the gospel advanced in this community, there's still joy. Because you put Jesus first. And then you take the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people. And as a result, you experience joy. You know, when you get the order wrong, you don't experience joy. You know, when you say, I want to be happy. God wants me to be happy, which is not biblical, okay? God wants me to be happy. So, I want to be joyful. I'm going to think about me first, all right? And oh yeah, Sundays are coming, so I think I'll go to church. That'll do my Jesus thing. And I might just give a little bit on the offering. That'll be the other's thing. 
Now, that sounds good, but that's not biblical. And that's not how God works, is it? And I guarantee you, you will not find true joy living that way. Paul got it right. The order was right in Paul's life. When you get the order wrong, you don't experience joy. When you get the order right, you do experience joy. Paul got the order right. He loved Jesus, and his passion in ministry was to make Jesus known to others, to make Jesus known to people. And when the product of his ministry could be seen in the church, he looked at the church and he said, Ah, that's good. That brings me joy. That's what I do when I look at my kids and they're obeying, you know, my children, and they do things that are good. One of my children came to me the other day and said, Dad, can I vacuum the car? I about fell out of my chair. I said, can you vacuum the car? Absolutely you can. But the question is, may I? Because I'm an English teacher too. I'm trying. But no, I didn't say that. I said, absolutely. Get Vacuum the car. Here's the stuff. You know where the stuff is? Let me tell you how to do it. Great. This is great. He came back after a while. Do you want me to vacuum the trunk too? Sure. You vacuum the trunk. What happens? That brings me joy. It was good for him too because I was so joyful I rewarded him. Right? Paul got the order right, and he found great joy as a result. Paul had a passion for ministering the gospel because he wanted people to be reached, and he wanted people to be changed by the gospel. We're not here to make a name for our church. We're here to make a name for Christ, right? And we are here to serve so that people will be changed by the gospel by the good news of Jesus Christ. And you know what? When you see people changed by the good news, what does that do for you? That brings you joy, doesn't it? It brings me joy. And Paul had a passion for ministering the gospel because he wanted people to be reached and changed by the gospel. He wanted people to be reached with the good news of Jesus Christ. And I would contend that as believers in Jesus Christ, our ultimate passion ought to be the same as Paul's. Our ultimate passion, our highest passion, I think ought to be the same as Paul's. He's a great example here. We each, let me say something here, because we each may pursue that passion in a slightly different way, okay? You have your place of work, and I'm not saying you quit your job and you know you go off and become a monk. You know, that's that's completely wrong. That's completely backwards because Jesus expects you to go to work Monday morning with this passion in your heart for people, to know Jesus, and to help your coworker know Jesus. And when your coworker knows Jesus, you'll find joy. And some of you know. You need a lot of joy, right? Because sometimes your coworker is not that guy you want to work with. For some of you, it's your spouse that Jesus wants you to influence for Jesus Christ. For some of you, it's your children. For some of you, it's your neighbors. For some of you, who knows? That, that way that we practice that ultimate passion may look a little bit different for each one of us. And God has gifted us all differently. And so the practice of that passion may look a little different, but I think as followers of Jesus Christ, my contention is that we all ought to have a passion for knowing Jesus and making Jesus known to people. 
our one supreme passion in life as believers in Jesus Christ ought to be to reach others with the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to see people changed. That's why we pray this morning. A couple of spiritual requests, you know, spiritual emphasis requests. I think about marriages. We want, we want marriages that are whole and sound and influenced by the love of God in their marriage, right? And so we pray that God would have our heart's attention and that God would have the heart's attentions of husbands and wives. And that not, not that they would grow closer together, but that they would grow closer to God. Have you ever seen the illustration of growing closer to God on the pyramid in relationships when you think about a husband and a wife? When you think about a parent and a child, when you think about coworkers in the picture of a triangle, they'd be at the opposite corners. As you grow closer to Christ, what happens? You grow closer to each other, don't you? And that's what we ought to be all about as followers of Jesus Christ, being passionate about knowing Christ and about making Christ known. There's nothing wrong with playing golf. Not for me, probably. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with traveling. There's nothing wrong with loving your grandchildren to death. You know, not literally, but you know. There's nothing wrong with teaching young minds and shaping the, the future in the young minds of children. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with making the big sale, the next big sale. But are those things, are those the things that the people of God should make their highest calling? Those really temporary things on earth? Are are those the things that should be our highest passion? Are those the things that should fulfill us and drive us and get us through the next week? I noted earlier John Piper's thoughts on an American tragedy, how not to finish your one life. I want you to note this contrast. They've actually got a website committed to that book. It's called don'twasteyourlife.com. Easy enough, right? They've got a blog on there. And on this blog, I noticed this the other day because I was looking for this quote that I shared with you earlier. And listen to this statement that they make, um, this this post on May 22nd, called Intentional Early Retirement. We received this testimony from a man who retired early for for love's sake rather than comfort's sake. Would you pray with us for the millions of baby boomers who are contemplating retirement in the next few years? Pray that many would dream large dreams of risk-taking love for the glory of God like our brother below rather than merely planning for personal comfort. And then they post this note from a man named Ramon. He says, At the age of 63 and contemplating retirement, I read the book, Don't Waste Your Life. After much prayer by me and some prayer warrior brothers, I sensed God calling me to take early retirement at age 64 so that I could do more volunteer mission work. As a result, God has called me to do mission work in Ecuador, and I completed my sixth visit just this past month, and I'm planning a a, a team Mission. I'm going to take a time where I take a team mission in July of 2007. As a follow-up to that, someone else read that and sent this in. Responding to that post, another reader wrote, said, I gave my father, also 63 years old, a copy of Don't Waste Your Life, 
And the next thing I knew, he was on a plane with me and my husband, all on our way to a foreign country to do mission work for a week. This is a man who has taught Sunday school all his life, but never felt called to be a missionary. He and my mom are now retired and living in that country. And then she says, God is good. Now, I'm not saying you have to quit your job early to go be a missionary. But I do ask you this. In light of the fact, you see, these people are people who are passionate about knowing Christ and passionate about making Christ known. You see Paul's passion. You see the outcome. You see the results. You see his joy. What are you passionate about? What are you passionate about? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning with the words of the Scripture ringing in our ears. I pray, God, that we would find great joy in serving Jesus, great joy in ministry, as Paul shows he did. But Lord, I pray that it is all founded on a proper passion, that we would be passionate about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Father, I pray that as we go into our lives, as we leave this place and we go into our life, that you would take us where where we are, because you put us where we are, and that you would help us to live for your glory, all for your glory. That you would help us to be passionate about the right things. We so thank you for the things that we enjoy in this life. We know that they're your blessings. But help us to have the proper perspective. Help us to have a passion that's formed and shaped by our knowledge of God, knowledge of God's Word, and by the wonderful mysteries and knowledge revealed and the wisdom revealed through Jesus Christ in us. Lord, help us to be yielding to You because without a heart that's yielded to You, it's very likely our passions will be out of line with Your Word. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.